Hi, everyone. My name is Sambal Siddiqui, Mayor of Cambridge. And I'm Alana Mallon, Vice Mayor, and this is our podcast, Women Are Here. So we're here. <laughs> what day is it, Alana? I think it's Friday. It's definitely it's Friday. Friday. Yeah, it felt like a very long week, um, even longer uh, than I'm used to, but uh, we're here, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. Well, the funny thing is... What have you been up to? Well, let's just let everybody know that we tried to do this earlier, and we had major technology issues, and now we have... Oh, yeah. trying something new, where we're recording this through a Zoom video. Um, The mayor is at City Hall, and I am in my bedroom. Um, And so we're going to try this out. We're going to see if it works. I hope it doesn't sound totally weird, Um, but here we are. Uh, it's been a crazy week. I don't know about what you, but it has been, there's been a lot going on. We have a lot of coronavirus updates to talk about, um, yeah. mental health issues to talk about. So, Sambal, when you want to kick it off? Yeah, well, have you, let's start with the TV show. Have you watched anything? Oh, I did. Um, you know, I Good, watched, maybe? Was, yeah, I watched the new um Mindy Kaling show, The Never Have I Ever, and it's about a girl who's in high school. She's a sophomore, and her dad passed away very suddenly, and um, as a result, she somehow became paralyzed from the, from the waist down for like a year or six months or something, and then over the summer, she just she cured herself, and it's about her, her next year at high school, having been the girl whose like dad died in the middle of um, like a orchestra performance and then lost the use of her legs. And now she's like back and she like wants to be like a real teenager. And it's just sort of about her journey with her and her friends. And then like, she's in love with the like cutest guy at school. Um, it's just like a balm, a soothing balm on a, like these <laughs> terrible times where you're like, this is, she's so cute. Um, and the mom is hysterical, just absolutely hysterical. Um, and then, you know, of course, hilarity ensues. And then, you know, she's like not a great friend. Right. And, uh, it's, it's like, you'll love it. Oh God. Yeah. I'm in that phase of it. <laughs> you love shows. Yeah. I'm, love I'm almost them. done. Oh, you are. Okay. So you, okay. So don't you love her, Debbie? So I don't love her. I find her kind of annoying, to be honest. And I don't know what it is. I love that, like, Mindy Kaling has this show and there's South Asian, like, a lead character who's South Asian. And I love all her, like, friends. It's really, it's great to see that on uh, on TV. I think, I think I hate that she's such a bad friend. Right. And <laughs> I know she's a teenager, but I'm like, but I, I hope she redeems herself. I'm in the middle, um, so we're, you know we're not done yet. But I'm I'm almost through it. And uh, I, but it is funny the the South Asian elements of it. It just remind me of my mom. <laughs> I know a little I, bit, and so I lo- I love that part in the relationship that she has with her mom and how she feels like her dad was like the one who really loved her and he was gone and. The mom's just like trying to keep it all together. Anyways, it's a really good show. It's called Never Have I Ever. I really loved it. Sumbles in the middle of it. Um, I would definitely suggest it. I, I have something to not suggest is that last night, I, I don't know why, but I, just, <laughs> I watched that movie Contagion. Oh, wow. You did? <laughs> it's about a pandemic from 2011. And it was terrifying. <laughs> and I think if I had seen it in 2011, I'd have been like, this is the most unbelievable thing ever. This would never happen. None of this. This is so crazy. So crazy. And then now I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. And then that happened. Okay. Um, so I, I'm not recommending it, but it was fascinating, especially around the part of this that we haven't quite got to, which is the vaccination part, which is, I mean, what happens with the vaccines and how they, you know, decide who gets the vaccines and when and what happens. Like, that's something like I, I was like, oh wow, I hadn't even... Hadn't really gone there yet. Didn't want to really think about that, but now I am. So, um, but it's like action. It's like star studded. It's like Kate Winslet and Matt Damon and Lawrence Fishburne and Brian, Mc- Brian Cranston. It's like every person that comes on screen, you're like, that is the, one of the most famous actors in the whole world. It must've cost a million, like a gazillion dollars to make. Hmm. Anyway, 
So that's what I've been. <laughs> so while we're on, I mean, I'm not going to watch that. But um, no. while we're on the topic of vaccines, um, Moderna, which is a biotech company here in Cambridge, they announced yesterday that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration gave the company um, the clear to begin phase um, two trials of the potential vaccine. So now researchers with Moderna will soon be testing the vaccine with 600 volunteers who will receive two different dosages and a placebo. Oh. So, you know, this is, this is really um, groundbreaking, you know, and I, I, I'm saying it here. I think maybe Moderna will hopefully be how we find a vaccine. Right, right here in Cambridge. Right here in Cambridge. So they they um they are going to team up with a Swiss company uh, to to make one billion doses of the vaccine uh, per year if everything goes well and all that good stuff. So so just more to come, everyone. But breaking news: one million per year. To, they they were going to team up with the Swiss company Lanza to make one billion doses of the vaccine. Oh, one per year. Oh. Billion, okay. Billion, yeah, 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 billion. Anyway, there's a lot of other things. Um, there's a long way to go, but this is a big, big, like, step in the process. So, you know, I think eyes around the world are watching. All right. So I'm excited to report that. So while we're on this topic, uh, I want we wanted to update you. We've seen about 808 cases of COVID-19 and 63 um, deaths in Cambridge. And according to our chief public health officer, most of these fatalities are coming from our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Uh, the current number is 48 deaths from long-term care facilities and 15 from what we're calling residents who are living in the community. 15% of our cases have recovered so far, mirroring recovery rates at the state and federal level. The state data uh, was showing a drop for a few days in new cases. Um, to around 1,000 to 1,200 from the highest point of, uh, which was uh, 3,000 per day, but it jumped back up the last two days to around 1,700. So, you know, we're, we're looking at this um, and we, we're looking at the numbers for, uh, for a, a, you know, downward trend. Yeah, so um, I, I always look at the, the the number of people that are in hospitals too as like yep. a, a touchstone, and it, they have been steadily decreasing. And so that mm-hmm. I mean that's where that's, we, good. that's good, and it's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. There was one day where it like jumped up a little bit and is now back down. So that's that's some exciting news. Um, we also heard um, from our public health department that the CDC has expanded their list of coronavirus symptoms to include uh, the loss of taste or smell shaking, chills, and a few other things. So our public health team will now be reviewing death certificates going back to the beginning of the year when testing was less successful and um, more residents may have been carriers uh, and died of COVID and so that we can potentially reclassify prior deaths as resulting from the COVID-19 virus. Um, you know, and speaking of, you know, are we in a plateau right now? Are we, are we coming out of this? Are, expert advisory panel here in Cambridge that meets weekly is currently studying our data here in Cambridge to see if our cases are beginning to plateau and then exploring more ways we might be able to flatten the curve of infection. So we look forward to hearing that um, the that conversation, the outcome of that conversation on Monday night. And we also heard on Monday night um, that the city's case count has been updated to include positive cases by zip code as well as the racial ethnic data and we heard how black residents are three times more likely than white residents to test positive for COVID-19 and Latinx residents are similarly disproportionately impacted by COVID. So this data is what we're seeing across the country and so um, it's really important you know we really believe to have that have this in real time so we can better respond as a community. And as far as the racial data, 20% of our patient profiles are still incomplete um, compared to 50% of patient profiles at the state level. So our public health department is going to continue to collect more information from COVID-19 positive residents. So our data is as accurate as possible. 
Yeah, and then Public Health also announced that they're doing a, a third round of COVID-19 testing uh, to be conducted at our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. So we've reported on this podcast before that the City of Cambridge partnered with the Broad Institute to do the first two rounds of testing. So that third round is going to include the standard nasal swabs um, and then the additional antibodies testing. So as the first round of testing showed, we had really high levels of infection among residents and staff of these facilities, some, some more than others. Um, and then a task force was launched to provide assistance uh, in helping them work on that issue. Um, and then they also were able to provide some medical guidance and um, procure personal protective equipment and respond to staff and supply shortages and offer that em emotional support. Uh, I think it's been really hard on some of our nursing facilities um, among the staff because it has just hit so hard. Um, what I'm just curious, Sumble, I know that you are on some calls, state level calls, um, and we've been giving kind of a Cambridge level uh, update, but what are you hearing on the state level in terms of plateaus, in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of reopening and what that might look like? I mean, we're, you know, it's May 8th. The governor said that, you know, we would know more on May 18th. That's 10 days away. And I'm just wondering if you have any insight. Yeah. So the calls are pretty interesting. And I'm also on like weekly calls with mayors across the country through this initiative through the Bloomberg, uh, where we hear from experts on John Hopkins and so forth. And I think what we're hearing is, you know, ultimately we have to be very cautious. I think it's still really too early to tell. Um, yes, maybe cases are going down, um, but, you know, I think the standard would be at least like 14 days of steadily declining cases. And that has not happened um, in most places. Uh, and so what we really are really working on is testing. Uh, we have to te test and we also have to do um, contact tracing. And what's really coming up is that, you know, these are kind of the, the words we're using around um, safe isolation and quarantining. Those are pretty privileged words, right? Not everyone can do that. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the transmission that's happening is between households. And I think right now we're wondering, I think we have to figure out a way um, as a community to think about, you know, which of our populations who may test um, positive and, you know, uh, or, you know, asymptomatic, you know, what, what really their options are if they don't, um, can't go back to their home. And so like, I think a lot of other um, cities are, you know, thinking around that. Um, how do we give tools and resources to people um, uh, for that? I think, um, you know, there's other ideas that have been raised. You know, some cities, not in Massachusetts, but I've, other cities have repurposed motel rooms. You know, they've gotten hotels. We've had some hard time even getting a hotel to say yes to, to, to doing something like this here. Um, but anyway, the, all that to say, the calls are all about looking at the data and really using data to inform public policy choices and how we think about um, re reopening. And so I think a lot of different states are in, you know, they're, like we heard from someone in South Carolina um, who is in definitely a different place than Massachusetts. They're, I think, closer to reopening. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I will be writing a little bit more about what I'm exactly hearing on these Metro Mayor's calls and through the Bloomberg initiative. And I've already shared some of the stuff that I'm getting from the Bloomberg initiative uh, and shared it with our city staff who, you know, we have a reopening internal task force looking at what reopening looks like and, and what that really means. And so uh, there's been really some, a lot of excellent research that has been done that kind of points to look, you know, if you have a larger, large number of workers who are older, what, what, what are you gonna do? Um, you know, how are you going to um, open up parts for people um, who are most, you know, most vulnerable? Um, what's the staffing going to be um, when where it's hard to physically distance? So anyway, um, the, the, that's a little bit disjointed, but I'm learning a lot from it. Well, one of the things we, we had a call earlier today around um, daycare and summer camps and schools and like when you have a workforce that's made up of you know 
a lot of women. Um, how do you return to work when there is no daycare, right. when there is no school, when there is no summer camp? How do women um, or the primary caregiver in the family, how do they even think about coming back to work? Um, and what does that look like? And how do we, how do we plan for that? Um, because it doesn't seem like there is going to be a, you know, a really robust summer camp um, this summer. You know, daycares, I think, aren't even open until the end of June. Um, and so what does that look like? I did see that um, Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island, advised that she was going to be lifting the stay at, at home advisory for the state of Rhode Island. But when when I looked at what that meant, um, really, it was um, she was allowing funerals uh, for 10 or less people, um, allowing church gatherings for five or less people, opening non-essential businesses with strict uh, social distancing and um, public health measures. So, you know, it's sometimes when you hear a state is reopening, like I saw that and I was like, oh, they're reopening, but it, it's, just, it's, it's a small relaxing of some of the things. Um, so I did, I did wonder what, I'm really curious what's going to happen when um, the governor's task force comes back and says, here's how, here's how we're going to reopen. And I especially am concerned about what that means for our caregivers and, um, yeah. No, there's there's a lot of different sectors I'm I'm concerned about, and um, you know we keep getting questions about the Mayor's Youth Program, right? Right. right. <laughs> That's a lot on people's mind, and I can tell you that the the short answer is we don't know, and we're figure, we're really thinking about different options, and you know what are the options that can be virtual, um, but we're I think there's urgency on that note, uh, but I we are. Think actively, our human services is trying to think about how what we'll do there. But yeah, I mean, we were just talking this morning about um, summer food, right? You know, that still needs to happen, and it's usually a mayor summer youth program um, that staffs right. it. Uh, but it doesn't mean that if mayor summer youth program doesn't happen in a way that they can be out in community, that we can't. We have to still continue to get food to our families. I mean. We've been doing it for the last eight weeks and it has been uh, a lifeline for so many of these families. So, okay, so that's the state level update. Thank you for that, I was curious. Um, what's next, the Mayor's Disaster Relief Fund? Yeah. Yeah, the Mayor's Disaster Relief Fund is going. We've raised about almost 3.7 million. Uh, we are going to be pausing applications May 15th. Um, you know, we were pausing for I think one of the main reasons is there are a lot of applications still being that are pending and it requires a lot of staffing. And so we're trying to just see how much, how we, we want to make sure we're getting these applications approved in a timely manner for people. Um, and so uh, right now we've approved 474 applications and, uh, you know, attributed, uh, you know, given out um, over, I think, a million dollars at this point. Um, so we want to really figure out how to, actually it's 694 families uh, that we've helped and over a million, one, um, a million and 709, one, seven, oh, how you read that? <laughs> I can't read numbers. I have such a hard time reading numbers. Um, but yeah, so we, we have, we're still fundraising. Um, and I really want to thank a lot of the businesses. I did a video last week kind of highlighting um, a few businesses, Biomed Realty, um, the list goes on. Yesterday, we were starting a Thankful Thursdays around who to thank, and uh, the list is, it, you know, we, we keep growing. So really want to thank everyone who has donated, uh, and especially the individuals. So uh, we've also made it possible that residents who already received assistance last month uh, for rent, they're, you know, going to get this month as well. So with no questions asked. Uh, and so I think that's, that's important. And so I think we want to keep fundraising and then really seeing how, how this evolves. That's amazing. I well, I talked to a few people who had received the um, the mayor's funding or the mayor's really fun funding, and they um, 
they were so overjoyed to know that they would get an additional two months that that was going to be such a a huge help because obviously this is still dragging along and people are still unemployed and you know experiencing significant financial hardships um you know through this pandemic so that's amazing that's great i'm glad to hear that uh the other big thing that happened recently was that last week's city council meeting the city manager announced a mandatory mask order that went into effect uh, our emergency order here in cambridge goes further than the emergency order put into place by governor baker uh, for the entirety of massachusetts because as the city manager said monday night um, it is specific to our city which has a dense urban environment and he also emphasized that the police department is prioritizing educational enforcement. So, you know, more like giving out masks and distributing them to residents um, with fines being used as an absolute last resort uh, after the grace period ends. So last week, the police department handed out over 10,000 masks at drive-up locations, school meal sites, uh, in the Cambridge Housing Authority elderly buildings and at police headquarters on 6th Street. And then they received another shipment of about 12,000 masks and have started handing them out at meal sites uh, again. So, you know, I think that's been a topic of a lot of conversation, particularly as we're seeing across the country that police departments across the country are policing this uh, differently uh, for black and brown residents than they are for white residents, particularly, I don't know if um, several of you've seen some of the news that's coming out of New York City. Um, yeah. so, that has, uh, that's been a really big topic of conversation. And in fact, I think we're gonna be talking about it again on Monday night because um, there was an item on the agenda from last week. Yeah, from, mm -hmm. from counselors, Nolan Zondervan and Sabrina Wheeler, they asked that our mask order better comport with the state mask order and that the fine be waived in response to community fears. That's what this would over police her black and brown communities in the same troubling ways we've seen across the country. Councillor Zondervan exercised his charter right to get some more information so it'll come up again. Um, and there were some fiery exchanges. Yeah, there was a few uh, on this topic amongst the, the councillors. And I think, you know, in general, this is getting to all of us, the quarantine, the stay at home. Um, I know that for me, eight weeks in, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty testy and more easily spark to anger or emotional outburst. And what we've all been doing is just so hard, all of us, everybody, not seeing our friends or our family, having our loved ones that we're worried about, things that used to be normal, like grabbing lunch or going on a walk or going to the grocery store are all just now fraught with danger. Um, depend, you know, and the level of that danger you know, rises depending on your age group or whether it's immunocompromised. So this has been incredibly hard on everyone's mental health. And I just, I think we all need to take a minute and acknowledge that this is, this has been hard, it has been traumatic and it will continue to be hard and taking care of our mental health is a major priority. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm experiencing that too. It's, it's really real. Um, one thing my office has been doing is um, when I just recorded a, this, right before this uh we're doing mental health mondays and so on monday this this episode will air and it's about mental health and communities of color um and we had some great panelists join us uh today um and it was moderated by albert press plus the the program manager of the men health league okay. Men health league uh, at the cambridge uh, public health um and the Men's Health League focuses on the health and wellness of men of color in our community. And we are joined by um, Dr. Zena Johnson, uh, who's the Director of Community Minority Affairs um, at Cambridge uh, Health Alliance. And she's an Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry. Uh, we are joined by Reverend Lorraine Thornhill. And then we are joined by Anishka Hansen Verma, who's the Clinical Social Worker for the Asian Mental Health Program at Cambridge Health Alliance. So it was such a really great conversation. It was hour long and, um, you know, we, we kind of asked, uh, Albert asked the you know, questions around, you know, what's been hardest for you um, during this pandemic? You know, how, how are, um, you know, people from diverse communities being affected by the different mental health disparities? Um, and, you know, what are some challenges and opportunities moving forward? So it, it, it was really helpful to hear them talk about all the different things. You know, the Reverend um, uh, Thornell talked about how she's having prayer, um, you know, 
kind of prayer rooms and digitally and it's more you know she's not calling it therapy but you know if because there's stigma to therapy if you're gonna say oh come for therapy um but by calling it this people people of faith are like still talking about their needs and what they need and how overwhelmed they are and uh the big takeaway is just to make sure that people are talking to one another um and there is a lot of help out there too uh and so if you'd like to watch that's going to air 3 p.m on monday this episode so i think it's a really good episode and um, i'm excited for the future ones we have but yeah I, for me personally like it's been it's really this has been really challenging um this whole thing but uh i think it's what keeps me sane is knowing that like it's much more difficult for people than me uh and that keeps me kind of going in a way i'm like i'm so i feel fortunate to be where i am and i think you know we all think you know we all feel like if we can help people then that's what matters so i think whatever we can do to make sure you know we connect a residential uh, a resource uh, that they need um or you know just uh, calling a friend i had a friend last night he's not you know he's in minnesota he's a doctor and we just it was like a quick FaceTime after my long school committee hearing. But, you know, it was very important to have because, you know, people are down everywhere and you just want to talk. It's important to talk to each other. So that's that's what's keeping me going. So, but it's been hard. But, yeah, I'm glad we get to see each other virtually at least, right? I get to see you sometimes in person with a mask on six feet away. Russia. I saw you this morning at City Hall. But we can't hug. I know, but we can't it's hug. It's true. That's true. And I know how much you love hugs. I know. Um, okay, well, let's get to the, some of the city council stuff that happened on Monday night and um, just give you a couple of quick updates. Uh, we wanted to let you know about a um, one of the allocations on Monday night's agenda was a $20,000 allocation to Transition House, which is our local domestic violence um, nonprofit here that works with victims and survivors. So they're going to use this $20,000 in funding from the city to provide domestic violence victims and survivors with hotel rooms and any other supplies that they need to leave an abusive situation during COVID-19. So our um, emergency communications uh, operators, our 911 operators and human service providers have been seeing a real drop of calls since the start of the pandemic. And to them, this is very, very worrying. It's suggesting to them that survivors may stay in dangerous situations out of fear of contracting the coronavirus outside of that dangerous situation. Um, the Cambridge Police Department has seen a recent spike. So in the last two weeks, there's been a spike, however, in both the number of domestic violence received and in the intensity of the situation. So that's why uh, Mayor Siddiqui and myself and city staff work to secure this funding, this $20,000, to ensure that domestic violence survivors can escape those situations and be putting, you know, put on a better path and in, in, in a safe place to ensure that they're protected from COVID-19. So uh, there's a, a marketing out outreach campaign that Transition House has started last week called Quarantine But Not Alone. Um, and it is encouraging survivors to come forward. So it's, you'll start to see them uh, flower, flyers at the grocery store, hanging up in storefronts, just with a phone number to let people know, you know, if you are in, in if you're struggling, if you're in a domestic violence situation, call the number, there are resources still available, transition house is still available. Um, so I was, I'm glad to see this on the, I was glad to see this on the agenda. The other thing that we've been working on is a, um, an expansion of the silent 911, which I don't know if people know, but if you um, dial 911 and cannot say anything, so like, for example, if you know your house is being robbed and you're inside the house, you don't want anybody to know, but you call 911. Um, if the, the police department knows to go through a series of questions, um, and if they are not getting any responses, then they uh, immediately can triangulate your cell phone and can send a responding officer. So just getting the word out to domestic violence victims that once, if you're stuck in the house and you can't talk on the phone, you can call 911 and not have to, you know, say out loud what your situation is. The Cambridge Police Department will find you even if you're on the eighth floor um, they can triangulate you um, to that 
to a very specific location um, to ensure that you get the help that you need. So um, keep an eye out for that. That's something that we're going to try to do some, some signs, yeah. banners, some more outreach on that. So yeah, that's yes. um, really, really thank you to the Transition House and Liz Speakman from our, um, yeah. our cities and for the work that, that you know, they're doing. Uh, another big update is that starting today, uh, any Cambridge resident, uh, eight, eight years and up, uh, can be tested for COVID regardless of symptoms and regardless of insurance or immigration status, uh, Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4 at the East Cambridge Care Center. Um, you can drive up, you can walk up, you can bike up. <laughs> uh, my mom went today. Oh, did she? I just talked to her. She had a, an appointment today. She drove. Um, so wait now five days for her to get her. Yeah, and she said she has to wait five days for the results. Um, she's been working at the star market, so I've been kind of eh, about that, as you know. But she, um, yeah, so she was like, I was like, how was it? You know, I've heard, you know, because we've heard it's like, oh, yeah, it looks awful. All looks awful. She was like, you know, it wasn't bad. And then, you know, so this is disgusting, but I'm going to share it anyway. But like, <laughs> do you ever put a q tip up your nose to make yourself sneeze? No. Never? Never? Okay. Well, my mom oh, does why don't that. You, why don't you just look at the light like normal people? The light? Yeah, it makes your eyes water and then you sneeze. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know about that. So well, it seems less intrusive than the current plan you got. <laughs> my mom growing, so my mom growing up would take the Q-tip and put it in her nose to make herself sneeze, sneeze, and we'd just be like, "What are you doing, mom?" Like it was so bizarre. But then I started doing it, and like my mom was like, "You know, I stuff my nose with Q-tips all the time, so it wasn't <laughs> no big deal." <laughs> she's hilarious and now she then she's now she's taking a nap she's so cute <laughs> anyway so i'm i haven't are you gonna get tested should we go together or what i i don't i don't have any don't, symptoms and well, you don't I, have to have symptoms oh i know but like are they doing the antibody tests at the same time so yeah i think the thing with antibody tests it just depends on what like who is giving this test we heard a lot about on the calls about how these tests they're not, um, what's the word? What's the word? They're not 100% reliable. Hmm. Um, and anyway, I was, I was thinking about doing it. I don't know. So, so I saw Counselor Wu in Boston. She went yeah. and got the, she got the nasal test and then she got the antibody test. And then the antibody test, the, she tested negative for COVID, but then her antibody test came back and said that she tested positive. So she may have had COVID in the past. So I think I wouldn't go get tested unless A, I was experiencing symptoms or B, that there was like a corresponding antibody test that I would get at the same time. Yeah. But you're saying, and I think, I feel like Dr. Bruno Martha said this the other night at the council meeting too. She was like, yeah, there's, there's so many false negatives and false positives with the antibodies just sort of unstable right now, but. Um. Yeah. So there's there, the, you know, the accuracy, there's a lot of concern about the accuracy of the antibody tests and it, it, um, it varying, but it's, it's interesting. So I think that's the next step that the city is going to start um, or Cambridge health Alliance will be doing antibody testing. Okay. So anyway, uh, on Monday, we had a whole discussion around um, the fact that this East Cambridge Care Center isn't uh, on Gore Street. And actually, the, when we, in the city side, when Louis and I, had, we were, you know, in touch with the Cambridge Health Alliance about this being a site, the first thing I said was, wait, why isn't Windsor Street um, a location, right? I, that's my clinic, actually. I've grown up going there still um where my provider is and so i said that's a great location especially because it's in the, the port right um, and counselor simmons also brought this up about how we should have another testing location in the port um because we're seeing a high number of positive test results there and we should work to add additional hours to better serve our residents who you know don't I mean you know they may be the frontline workers right, right. Um, and so there's there we're figuring out the feasibility of doing that. I think what it's going to probably look like is we're going to um, maybe just like we have been doing testing at our senior homes, at um, our homeless shelters with the Broad Institute and, and Pro EMS, we may be setting up um, opportunities to just have 
to be there maybe twice a week at this the clinic um, and work with residents um, in that area as a as a way to uh, provide more options and we also talked about shuttles because for me I was thinking you know the residents in Fresh Pond Apartments right like in North Cambridge right and I've been calling call Gore Street oh right right Gore, like it's yes we're a small city it's not that far especially because there's no traffic but it's more um it's just more like a barrier yeah it's still a barrier so how are we if we want to provide access what are the ways we can increase access so i'm looking forward to working with um everyone to to figure out how we how that access piece especially um if it's universal testing um it gets figured out I would really like us to consider some kind of, um, I know in Harvard Square and Central Square, there are the Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which is the medical facility, the mobile medical facility for home yep. residents. If there was some way to do a mobile testing, mm -hmm. um, not that people need to drive to you, but you could, you know, you determine days that you would go to the Fresh Pond Apartments or you would go out to, um, you know, Cambridge Park Drive or some of these, you know, places that are a little bit harder to get to. So I think that would be a really interesting yeah. thing to think about. Um, okay, so the other thing that, um, one of the other exciting things that happened at the Monday night meeting was that the city announced a small business relief program um, that uh, both Stumble and I have been working on for the past 500 years, <laughs> it feels like. Um, but it was finally announced. Uh, the uh, So what it is, it's um, going to be a dual part partnership uh, program to support our small businesses. So the city will be providing up to $10,000 as a grant to small businesses um, that apply. And it's either up to $10,000 or three times the um, their, their monthly business expenses. And then we partnered with the Cambridge Redevelopment Authority to do a 0% interest loan uh, for up to $15,000. So that zero interest loan will be over five years, and then the first payment wouldn't be due until June of next year. So it would be a $15,000 loan that you wouldn't have to pay a dime um, into June of next year, and then it's 0%. So the, the bank is not making any money off of um, our small businesses because what the thing that we heard was very loud and clear first that um, small businesses need money, not you know grants, not loans and the loans that they are interested in and in taking on are ones that um, are less than the three percent that the um, small business administration has been um, putting out there and making available so we worked so hard on this we worked with um, members of the federal reserve bank members of our local banking community the cambridge redevelopment authority our city leadership um, the business associations we worked closely with them to get their input on uh, what an application process would look like um, what some of um, the incentives for uh, folks to make sure that you know our women and minority-owned businesses, our veteran-owned businesses, would get a little bit of a, a bump in the application um, and a priority consideration. So those um, those parameters are coming out today. They should be on the website. You can look at cambridgema.gov/covid19 and click on businesses. Uh, there'll be a whole thing on what the program looks like, who, you know, who qualifies and um, what some of the priority considerations are. And then the application will actually go live uh, next Thursday. And then um, from what I understand, they want to get these applications in and funded um, in a couple of weeks because we know how tenuous the situation was with some of our small businesses. Um, so, you know, that it's going to be around $3.6 million that the city and the, um, and the CRA are putting into our small businesses, which is not, not small. Um, and so what we're really hoping is that this will help leverage and get our small businesses to a place where they can think about reopening um, and pay their bills, pay their employees, um, and really look at what does a reopening look like and knowing that, at, you know, down the line when we are thinking about reopening and what that looks like that you know our businesses might need a little bit more help but this will get us to a place where we might have stores and restaurants that can reopen at that point so um that like i said took a long time for us to do uh, but we really both felt like um, we needed to look out for our small businesses and our main streets so i think the other thing that they announced was a small business advisory group has been formed they had their first meeting this past week and that um, advisory group is charged to work on the ways that city, the city can help our small businesses and restaurants reopen, whether that's waiving fees and permits, streamlining opening um, 
reopening inspections, whether that's um, thinking about how to use the public ways um, in different ways mm -hmm. to open patios or restaurants who need to have a larger distance between tables or how farmers markets can operate. So a lot of those things that, um, you know, the experts around the table can really think about how the city is, is going to have to support our small businesses or restaurants to allow them to reopen. I mean, if you think about a restaurant, um, if it reopens and they, you know, you have to have six feet in between uh, patrons, how do we use those patios? How do we, you know, how do we spread those out so that a restaurant can open at what, you know, would be a full seat capacity in pre-COVID um, but not using just the space that they are uh, allocated. So um, that I think they're meeting weekly. Yeah. Um, and there is an order on the city council agenda for Monday night put in by Councillor Dolan, uh, Councillor Carlone, myself, um, around supporting the idea of using uh, additional sidewalk space in public ways uh, to put patios out. The other thing that um, I did last year, or the year before, is I worked with the fire department and the Harvard Square Business Association to do a pilot of, you know, those like gas heaters that are out mm -hmm. on patios to extend the patio season. Um, and that went really well. And so they're looking at, you know, making sure that that can go citywide so that we can extend that patio season so that people can sit outside even longer and extend the amount of time and the amount of uh, patrons that a, rest a restaurant can have. So that was very exciting that happened. Yeah, and something else uh, related that we're also working on, which, you know, we'll have hopefully news on this month is around um, helping our nonprofits as well. Um, there's a real concern from the nonprofit community around what to, what, you know, the challenges they're facing too. Um, you know, both Alana and I, you know, wanted to help with, uh, we wanted to, you know, start with small businesses because nonprofits can fundraise um, because of their exemptions. And so we, but all along we have had in the back of our mind, okay, you know, is there some way to help um, our nonprofits as well. So stay tuned. We're busy behind the scenes working on, on different ideas and funds. We're so busy behind the scenes working on so many things. Um, but yeah, I think that was a concern when we um, announced the small business grant and loans that um, mm -hmm. I think uh, the nonprofits really want to make us understand that they are also experiencing some serious financial hardships. And I know both of us have a nonprofit background. So this is really at the core of who we are, making sure that these nonprofits have what they need to survive um, and can reopen and stay supporting our residents like they have been for years and years, years um, but even more so in, in a post-COVID or even you know, post-stay-at-home looks like. Um, one of the other things that we talked about on Monday night that we both worked on was an order trying to think, have the Cambridge Public Libraries, now that the schools are going to be closed until the end of the year, how do we um, really think about getting library materials to our students? Um, you know, whether you're a young reader, an early reader, somebody who um, has become an avid reader, whether you're in high school and you need the, that reference materials. Um, I know for me, I have two kids and they're on screens all day long, you know, with distance learning and it's the only way that they're socializing with their friends. Um, and now, you know, they, they do have access to eBooks, um, but you know, that's a long time to be on the screens and lots of our kids don't have that kind of access digitally anyway. So thinking about uh, ways where our public library can be innovative and creative uh, in a safe way of getting books out to the community, to those kids that need them. I will tell you that um, this past week, the mayor's office, uh, the Cambridge Public Library, and um, you and me, <laughs> we uh, actually, the Cambridge Public Library donated over 2,000 brand new books that we packed up um, as in, in, in bags and by level, you know, we had board books, we had, you know, kindergarten to second grade, we had third to seventh grade, and then we had high school level. Um, we had Spanish books and we took them to the meal sites this past week and distributed them to kids. And I want to tell you that kids were so excited to be getting a bag full of brand new books. Um, I think because, you know, lots of kids don't have books at home. Even if you do have books at home, you've read them all. You've been home for two months, right? So it was really uh, like 
I had, there's not that many moments of joy <laughs> during the pandemic, but this was really um, to see those kids really um, connect with the folks that were um, yeah. looking at the books, looking at the books, being excited. Um, I think for me, it really showed how important having actual books is for kids and that this actual policy order on Monday night, I hope that they act swiftly on it because there are ways um, whether or not they use the online reservation system at the library that they use right now and um, have dedicated pickup times like we do for takeout or for grocery stores, um, or if they continue to use the meal sites as a vehicle to get books out to kids. Um, I, I think it's a critical thing that we need to do for our students right now. So that was super fun. Um, and thanks to everybody. Thanks to Nancy Tauber at, at Find It. Thanks to Maria at the library. And thanks to Hill Saxton and uh, Liz Fipsuero, who uh, really just jumped in last Friday and packed up 600 bags. So many. So many. I felt bad. Like everybody that came into City Hall was like, oh my God, I, you have just, I trashed it. I just trashed the basement. I know. I was, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. I think everyone was a little nervous that I was. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was it looks, hilarious. It looks hilarious. fine today. It's no, fine. no, it looks really good. Thank you for cleaning up. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you know, the, I think the physical books are so important. So excited about uh, that for our, our students. So we'll leave you with this. Another thing that happened this week that was a huge distraction mm -hmm. um, Sunday night was a tweet that was made by a uh, superintendent um, uh, in the Cambridge Police Department who, you know, tweeted uh on the official account, thinking it was his personal account, um, and made a statement, made pretty much a political statement against uh, Kennedy, Congressman Kennedy, and uh, Senator Markey. And so that happened Sunday night. And so this week, um, I, my office, and has, and the City Council in general, have gotten a lot of emails about this tweet and there's an order on Monday um, about the tweet as well. And, you know, I think from my end, I think I'm, I was just really disappointed that that, that happened. Um, and it, it kind of was a distraction from all the great work that is being done by our Cambridge Police Department. Um, and, you know, it, 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 was, it was just really disappointing. I agree a hundred percent. I think it was, um... I was, sh I mean, I was just really shocked to see that on the Cambridge P Police Department Twitter, which, by the way, um, Jeremy Warnick over at the police department does an amazing job really connecting and communicating with the, with the residents of Cambridge um, on that Twitter. I, um, it's a huge distraction. And, you know, I have, you know, I worked for the mayor um, of Cambridge several years ago, and I ran, you know, his you know, I had access to his Twitter as well as mine. And certainly there was at least once where I retweeted something, um, which I thought I was retweeting from my own uh, Twitter uh, and I retweeted it from his Twitter and I certainly heard about it because it wasn't something, it was not offensive at all. It was just, you know, like, <laughs> wasn't a thing that, you know, he would have tweeted out. So I certainly understand that, you know, mistakes happen. However, I think if you are a high ranking member of the Cambridge Police Department, and you have a private, you know, public Twitter, um, you should not be using it uh, in that way. I think you have a responsibility to the people that you serve to have a public image that is not using expletives and profanity. Um, and I'm, I'm very disappointed. I'm very disappointed. And, you know, I felt, I felt like we needed to apologize um, to our national delegation who is doing an incredible job right now dealing with the coronavirus and uh, making sure that our residents have what they need through the CARES Act. Like uh, these are, Congressman Kennedy and, and Senator Markey are out there every single day working their tails off to make sure that we have what we need. At the same time, so are many of the men and women um, on the Cambridge Police Department. They are out there, they're handing out masks, they are helping our residents, they're putting themselves in harm's way of this virus every single day to make sure that our residents are right. safe. And this was a huge distraction and yeah. I, I, I'm very disappointed. And um, Yeah, and I'll just say that I did call the senator, I called um, the congressman, they were both very gracious and um, 
they're very gracious. The superintendent, Jack Albert, did call them to apologize and um, so forth. But uh, yeah, I think it, for me, it was a bummer to just have, that's why we're in the media, <laughs> you know? Um, There's and, all this other great stuff. And all this great stuff. So yeah, you know, it, so we just wanted to publicly talk about it openly. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where um, just so people know, the city council does not have a purview over hiring or firing or any personnel issues. And so the statement has been made that there, you know, there will be something with the procedures according to, you know, the police rules, some kind of um, disciplinary action taken, but we actually don't have any, we don't know what that is. Um, so I just want to make that clear. I've gotten a lot of emails and tweets uh, to say, you know, this person needs to be fired, this person needs to be punished, and, um, you know, regardless of what I believe should happen uh, or needs to happen in this situation, there's, I don't have authority over any of it, so. <laughs> you hear that siren? I think they're coming for you. I know. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, yeah, so we, we wanted to just quickly discuss it. And not to end on a Debbie Downer, but, you know, it was a distraction. I think, you know, we have, we, you know, we have a great police department who's doing amazing work. Um, and so I thank them for their service. Definitely. And, um, you know, I think we've, we've heard a lot this week that this type of thing really erodes the public trust in our law enforcement. And, um, you know, I think coupled with what's happening across the country around over-policing of our black and brown communities around masks, about social distancing, it certainly, um, it certainly, you know, exacerbates that here in Cambridge. And, um, and we've heard that loud and clear, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, we, we hear you, um, we agree, yeah. and we're disappointed as well. Um, so we'll see what happens on Monday night. Yeah, and just, you know, tweet, uh, think before you tweet. Check your handles, everyone. <laughs> I'm like, That's what I, I got to say. I would never, I, after that happened to me with the mayor's office, and I'm telling you, it was super, super innocuous, but I was like, I can't handle the responsibility of, you know, I, I, I can barely run my own Twitter um, in a safe and appropriate way. Um, don't ever ask me to do your symbol. I won't. I won't. <laughs> um, well, TGIF, uh, we hope everyone's doing well. Air hugs to all y'all. Uh, and uh, we'll see you soon and um, stay safe and, you know, and stay inside. <laughs> stay safe, stay healthy, make sure to keep an eye on your own mental health, call a friend, um, it really matters. So we're here for you too. If you need anything, just email us, tweet at us, uh, and we will see you real soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.